Hi, everybody, and welcome back on the Macro Compass. Now, this is another interesting week in markets, and we're going to dedicate this article to FX markets, which are absolutely on fire. FX volatility is back, and it also brings a lot of opportunities with it. Now, um, we, have, we have seen wild moves involving several currencies around the world, and generally there is one common denominator, which is weakness against the US dollar. But I want to first take a step back and explain why this is happening. We have had dormant FX markets for about one decade, one can say, but think about it. For the last two decades, developed markets economic models were based on a two-tier system of cheaply available leverage. Number one, low-cost economic inputs and just-in-time global supply chains. Now, this leverage was used to generate non-inflationary growth. The second leverage was that there has been so much debt creation, both in the public and in the private sector, which was sponsored by lower and lower borrowing costs. And this leverage has been used to feed the wealth effect. Now, many developed markets from Germany to Korea to other developed markets, Japan, for example, ha have had success with this economic model. But this economic model works as long as there is no exogenous shock to the system. Right now, actually, there is quite a lot of exo exogenous shocks from energy inputs, supply chains are disrupted, inflation, borrowing costs are going up, et cetera, et cetera. So once you apply some stress to quite a complex system like this one, based on two sources of leverage, of cheap leverage, the resulting pressure will look for the release valve. And currencies are one of the obvious candidates to act as a release valve. So there is a, this pickup in FX volatility, which is scary, but also brings a lot of potential opportunities because not all countries sit exactly in the same boat. And all of a sudden, fundamentals in FX matter again. So let's have a look at the framework to assess which countries are the most or the least vulnerable to these exogenous shocks and how to position both from a long-only portfolio perspective, but also from a long-short uh, tactical macro portfolio perspective. Now, an easy way to think about uh, these vulnerabilities is to ask yourself, where was this two-tier leverage system applied the most extensively? So where, uh, and, and also are policymakers credibly able to stop the bleeding caused by these exogenous shocks? Now you can assess uh, a bunch of indicators, both from a quantitative and a qualitative perspective for each country and come up with a decent scoring mechanism. So what I did is I looked at the vulnerabilities, which are mostly current account, or let's say debt and deficits in general. So when I talk about deficits, I refer to deficits in goods and services. So current account deficits mostly, when the value of your goods and services that you import is larger than the one you export outside, you have a deficit. Also, if you are a net debtor country uh, in the net international investment position, which means that you owe to the world, to the external world more than they owe you when it comes to financial assets. If you have a combination of those two deficits, um, you are not in a great position to handle external shocks because you are dependent on external funding in the very first place. And on top of it, if you plan to make a large use of fiscal deficits, that worsens the situation. UK, anybody? Now, if you also have private sector debt on top of it, it's very highly likely that your policymakers won't be well equipped to tighten fiscal and monetary policy to offset the shock because it would cause problems elsewhere. Now, on the strength point of view, indeed, there is a central bank policymaker credibility perspective, the ability and willingness to tighten policy to make the right decision, also on an FX management perspective and long-term strategic decisions is very important together with the amount of net foreign exchange reserves. 
which basically allow policymakers to uh, defend or strengthen their currency if they have enough of this net foreign exchange reserves. Now, if you put these six um, inputs basically into one scoring mechanism like I did, you can see in the article there is a table which is then color-coded um, per basically each variable per each country. And the green tonalities stand for a healthy effect supportive element. The orange and the brown tonalities stand for a weak um, uh, item when it comes to not supporting your, your, uh, your local currency strength. Now, what comes out of it is a table that basically shows 10 relatively large and systematically important currencies around the world ranked. And you can see already from the color coding in the ranking and in each single variable, uh, a bit of what is the summary that this framework is coming up with. But I don't want to spoil the party. So let's go and talk about the three, three very relevant currencies. Uh, and let's discuss them a bit more in details. So the first will be Japan. And Japan, in there, the main, the main question I get from people is, when is the ill curve control going to stop? Now, to put some context to that, you need to understand that Japan has been running QE forever. They at some point moved QE from a quantitative amount of bank reserves printed and pushed into the system and bonds purchased into a qualitative yield curve control where they basically decide where the 10-year rate is going to be. And that's basically referred as, as, as an yield curve control mechanism. Now, Japan... Um, actually has a current account and a fiscal balance, which aren't particularly happy, has a lot of leverage, both in the private and in the public sector. And as lately, this yield curve control is causing interest rate differentials between Japan and the rest of the world to widen aggressively, markets are asking, when will the yield curve control end? But in the chart I put in the article, you can see that Japanese core inflation has averaged minus, minus 0.2% over the last two decades. And also five-year forward, five-year inflation expectations have rarely managed to trade above 1%. And as a reminder, the central bank target is 2%, which means that incentive schemes here are important. Kuroda, which is the head of the Bank of Japan, will, will, uh, will end his term in spring 2023. And so far, he hasn't achieved these targets, not nearly. And he won't easily give up on, on easy monetary policy, especially if he's getting one last chance to declare victory in restoring inflation and inflation expectation close to 2%. Now, of course, if Japan insists pegging 10-year yields at 0.25% because of incentive schemes and what we just discussed, the market will be looking for the other release valve, which is the Japanese yen. And indeed, the market is going after it. So the question is, has the Bank of Japan enough ammunition and credibility to defend, the? actually, has the Ministry of Finance enough ammunition and credibility to defend the, um, the currency, the yen? And the answer is yes. So Japan owns roughly 1.3 trillion of gross foreign exchange reserves. The net amount is smaller because they have some repo and FX derivatives, which are basically uh, dollar liabilities that tend to subtract from this gross amount. But even the net amount of reserves, it's in the 1 trillion area, which is 20% of GDP. And most importantly, it would cover for more than one and a half years of imports. It's a very, very large amount of foreign exchange reserves that they intend and will use to try and stop the bleeding in the yen. So does this mean Japan will sell US treasuries to do that? And the answer is not immediately, although there is a lot of discussion about that. But the reality is that the first step in FX intervention is to use foreign deposits, sorry, deposits at foreign central banks. And Japan, as you can see in the table in the article, has over $135 billion sitting there. So they'll be using those first. Bottom line on Japan, it's definitely a vulnerable country to external shocks, but its policymakers' incentive schemes and the large amount of effects reserves they own 
could actually frustrate uh, both the yen and the Japanese government bond shorts for quite some time, as it's basically already happening for sure in the bond market. And now in the, the yen shorts are also finding this very large amount of effects reserves and this commitment from the Ministry of Finance to stop the bleeding there as a headwind for being short yen. Now, after Japan, we need to talk about Switzerland. And these countries could look similar, but they are really not. So Switzerland scores very well on the FX framework dashboard because it has a healthy current account and fiscal position as an extremely large amount of FX reserves. If you were impressed by the 1 trillion net reserves in Japan, you should be more impressed by the $900 billion that Switzerland owns because in percentage of GDP, we are looking at 120%. Now, the idea and the reason why Switzerland accumulated so many reserves was that Switzerland wanted to import inflationary pressures by weakening the Swiss franc. So the idea was to sell the Swiss franc and buy foreign currency, actually foreign assets, mostly denominated in euro and dollar. And you can see that over the last 10 to 15 years, the Swiss National Bank accumulated almost one trillion in reserves. Nevertheless, the Swiss franc kept appreciating against the euro. And there is also a very interesting portfolio composition where they own 25% of their reserves in equities. And up to my knowledge, this is one of the few central banks in the world that decided to allocate uh, FX reserves into equities. Now, the SMB doesn't do much repo or FX derivatives, which means this $900 billion is literally the net amount of FX reserves. It's absolutely gigantic. And inflation has been picking up in Switzerland too, but the Swiss National Bank has a couple of advantages. The first, it's a very coherent central bank. They have a very orthodox approach, which led them to accumulate gigantic amount of reserves and even invest them in equities under this very orthodox approach they have. The same orthodox approach will now lead them to be very credible in mechanically hiking rates until CPI falls back in line. They can do it. They will do it. They've been very clear about that. Most importantly, they now wish for a stronger Swiss franc, contrary to what happened over the last 15 years, or at least in their intentions. They have all the ammunition in the world. So they have policymakers' credibility in tightening conditions, and they have a gargantuan amount of FX reserves to use. So effectively, they can stand behind a stronger Swiss franc quite credibly. And if and when they do decide to actually use these FX reserves, watch out because they don't own much foreign deposit at central bank. They only basically own securities, which are German bond, French bond, US bond, US equities, European equities. And these asset classes could feel the heat of the large flows in case the Swiss National Bank decides to use them. But in general, I think that they, uh, the Swiss franc is a very palatable currency to use as a long leg in an FX trade right now against one of the weaker um, scoring effects in my framework. One of those obviously being the UK. So the UK is a big problem here. They're experiencing a serious exogenous inflationary shock. And look at the situation. They have a poor and worsening current account balance. They are a large net debtor to the world, so also financial account imbalance. They have private sector debt vulnerabilities, especially in the mortgage market. We'll quickly talk about that. We have, they have one of the lowest amount of net effects reserves in the world, basically across developed markets for sure. It's really, really little. They can cover about two months of imports. Think about that. And then they have a new government, which is pursuing fiscal largesse, and a central bank, which was trying to remedy to that, but had to backstop the domestic pension fund system right now. So it's also struggling with credibility. With such a setup, the market's going after both the sterling and UK government bonds. So in other words, it's basically saying that they won't fund the UK's external deficit positions at today's level of real yield and effects. 
investors will demand a cheap sterling or much higher real yields to support UK assets. When it comes to the credibility of the Bank of England to raise interest rates, of course, the UK mortgage market plays a role because it's, it's an historical, um, it has an historical tendency to be skewed towards short-term fixed interest rate mortgages. Until 2017, 70% of the market was concentrated in mortgages, fixed rate mortgages below five years. So to be refinanced very, very quickly, which led to my estimate, we'll have about one and a half to two million UK mortgages. They need to be refinanced in 2023. And those mortgages were locked in at two and a half, at two percent uh, mortgage rate on average, and the refinancing will happen likely in the six percent plus area. So good luck with that as well. The bottom line is that unless the expansionary fiscal stance is watered down in the UK, it's a very precarious situation to be in. Uh, the latest Bank of England intervention in the long end of the bond market uh, it might further motivate uh, the market to go after the very release valve that policymakers in the UK cannot address, which is the sterling. Now, when it comes to portfolios and what does it all mean, the comeback of FX volatility can actually act as a headwind for long-only portfolios because some countries, China that we didn't cover, but also Japan, Switzerland, they might be opting for defending their domestic currencies through using their very sizable FX reserves accumulated over the last decade. And while they start generally from deposits of foreign central banks, the potential selling pressure in government bonds and in some equities could affect further and be a headwind for long-only portfolios. So the, the, the big picture gets reinforced. Stay defensive as, as much as you can. And also the fact that the, B, the Bank of England intervened in the market, it's not bullish. They literally acted as the lender of last resort to avoid the domestic pension fund system to have systematic pressure. There is nothing bullish about that, guys. So the long-term ETF portfolio remains very defensive with a healthy position in dollar cash and underweight in equities and other risk assets, patiently waiting to accumulate uh, long-end bonds. Not the time yet. Tactical portfolio being stopped out in uh, yen longs against Australian dollar and Canadian dollar, which wasn't a very smart setup trade looking at my FX framework above. Uh, the short legs were not uh, necessarily bad, especially the Australian dollar, which is quickly depreciating against the US dollar. So I just chose the wrong leg, but hey, uh, global macro is also is, is basically a place which is constellated by mistakes. So who am I not to make one from time to time? I added a tactical trade, which is to be long the Swiss franc and short the sterling, which is basically on the back of today's analysis and piece. And one way to implement that for more sophisticated investors would be to do a digital call option on Swiss franc against um, sterling with a three-month expiry, roughly 10% out of the money forward, it costs basically 17% up front, which promises a payoff of six times your initial cash outlay. The skew is not cheap, of course, because uh, you know the levels of, of uh, implied and realized volatility are going up. But given the setup I just described, a six-time payoff for such a setup seems to be relatively palatable. I didn't add a short BTP boon spread position because I already have a short euro dollar, but it is one of the most asymmetric trades out there. I expect uh, Prime Minister Meloni in Italy to apply some fiscal largesse, and basically that makes uh, the BTP boon spread uh, widener, quite an asymmetric trade. I expect 300 basis point plus to be quite a distinct possibility. To sum it all up, guys, buckle up. FX volatility is back, and it matters, but it also brings a lot of opportunities with it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk again next week.